A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. To episode 19 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. Today, Noel Neff and I are discussing a passage from Genesis chapter 44. Welcome back, Noel. Hi, Father. I've been really excited to talk about the scripture for today's podcast for a few weeks now. Today, we will be stepping away from the lectionary to chat about Genesis 44, verses 1 through 13. I stumbled across these verses when I was studying for the Bible Bowl at last week's Parish Life Conference in Chicago. As an aside, for those who don't know, the Bible Bowl is a yearly competition in the Diocese of the Antiochian Orthodox Church. This year, we had to study and memorize large sections of Genesis. As I was studying the story of Joseph, Genesis 44 really stood out for me. There were a couple of those smaller details that I sensed might play a larger role in the story of scripture than we might expect. It's these details that I'm excited to chat with you about today. But before I get too involved in explaining everything, let's hear the passage. Now Joseph commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you stolen my silver cup? Is not this the cup from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in doing so. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Then he replied, Now as you say, so it will be. He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. The first thing that dawned on me after reading this passage was how little I associate it with the story of Joseph. I think it's one of those passages that I often just overlook. When Joseph comes to mind, I obviously think of his tunic of many colors, which his father Israel made for him. I think of the jealousy of his brothers, who in scripture become the twelve tribes of Israel. 
I think of how his brother Judah convinces the other brothers to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of gold. And who doesn't associate Joseph with his dreams? Joseph is the innocent victim of a pretty nasty scheme. But there is some consolation in his story when he ends up becoming ruler over all the land of Egypt. The only thing Pharaoh doesn't give Joseph is the throne. In all of this, I guess it surprises me that Joseph would try to pull a fast one over on his brothers. In his scheme that ends in his revealing himself to his brothers, he in turn frames his youngest brother Benjamin, who himself appears innocent of any wrongdoing. My sense is that there's more at work here than the playing out of a story about victims and perpetrators. After all, let's not forget that Joseph is the reason that the Israelites ultimately end up enslaved in Egypt. Their story plays out in the book of Exodus. So what are the details in play here? Well, we have the silver cup, which scripture specifically links to the practice of divination. An interesting detail, since we know this practice is condemned by scripture. There's the money in the mouth of each of their sacks. And I have to point out that the word servant is used three times in the span of verses 9 through 10. If you read on to verses 14 through 17, servant is repeated two more times, as is the word slaves. Let's hear those verses really quick. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Thus Joseph said to them, What is this thing you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the wrongdoing of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So what do you make of all of this, Father? Is scripture leading us, the hearers, anywhere in all of this? Thank you, Noel, for bringing us this text from Genesis. And I like that you used shepherd terminology when you asked, are we being led somewhere by this passage and where are we being led? Scripture is our nourishment. It's our sustenance. It's our daily bread of God's instruction. And as such, it does lead us. In order for us to be fed, we have to follow like a flock. So we want to understand this passage as best we can. In order to understand, we have to hear. Father Paul Tarazi has said, in order to really hear scripture, you have to hear all of it. Any part of the Bible is going to be valuable to our learning when we try to hear it in connection to the larger story and its teaching. And Genesis, particularly, is foundational. It's the first book of the Bible, and it already includes some key elements of the teaching that we will encounter later on in the story. The best way to try to understand what this passage is saying is to make some of those connections, so many of which are found in the terminology. Let's start with the mention of the silver cup and Joseph's attempt to frame his brothers, Benjamin in particular. In chapter 7 of Numbers, silver cup is repeated 12 times in the description of the gifts brought to the Lord by the rulers of each of the tribes of the children of Israel 
at the dedication of the altar. Its occurrence here in Genesis anticipates its function later in the story as one of the holy things used for worship during the wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. The cup is also said to be used for divination, something practiced by the Egyptians, but significantly forbidden by the Lord in Leviticus. So its mention here in Genesis is paving the way for us to hear later of the contravention of the law by the sons of Israel. Even beyond these two elements, we hear even more clearly in the unwarranted mention of gold alongside silver, a foreshadowing of their turning away from the Lord to serve idols. When Joseph's brothers defend their innocence, they ask him in verse 8, How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? The addition here of gold forces us to think ahead to when the Lord gives Moses an unusual and unexpected command just before the Israelites embark on the exodus from Egypt. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. That's Exodus chapter 11, verse 2. We then hear in chapter 12, just after the angel of the Lord has struck dead all of the firstborn of the Egyptians, and just as the Israelites are preparing to leave, beginning at verse 35, Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. There are a few things to point out here. The children of Israel are said to find favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The word favor is often rendered grace, so we want to hear this as a free gift in opposition to, say, payment or wages. Moreover, to say that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians suggests that they collected spoils of war. The author seems to be playing with two phrases which, to the hearer, are at odds with one another. How can the silver, gold, and clothing be both a free gift and the prize awarded for victory? Also, what need do the children of Israel even have for such things, just as they are being led out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into the desert? Details like this are often setting us up as hearers for something that is going to happen later in the story. We will see soon how this free gift is the result of the Lord's doing. He is providing these spoils of victory to the children of Israel to test them, to see what they would do with them. In the Exodus story, while Moses is on the mountain receiving the law from the Lord, the children of Israel become impatient and they ask Aaron, the priest, to make gods for them. As for Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
That's Exodus 32, verses 1 through 4. So the gold that the children of Israel received from the Egyptians before being delivered by the hand of the Lord will be used to fashion another god. Even worse, Aaron not only did the bidding of the people, but he declared the golden god to be the agent of their liberation from Egypt. This idolatry, the fashioning of another god, is the ultimate act of rebellion against the Lord. And they used the gold that the Lord himself commanded them through Moses to acquire before leaving Egypt. I hope we are beginning to see that this has been a setup, that the Lord put the gold there to entrap the children of Israel, and they fell right into it. I find this interesting, Father. It's almost as if these details are foreshadowing what is to come. I think as Christians, we are so used to reading scripture backwards. We know how the story ends. And as self-proclaimed believers, we hear Christ as the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. So we read him backwards into the text. I wonder if this might be the root of Christian theology. A different method would be to literarily start at the beginning and read scripture forward, as we would naturally do with any other story. Right, Noel. Yeah, as you point out, we so often start at the end knowing how the story finishes and then work our way backwards, that when we do go through a text, like we're doing now from Genesis, we can't catch the details. Um, in order to really hear the teaching, it seems like you have to work your way forward, but as we pointed out earlier, knowing the entirety of the Bible and the terminology so you can make the connections with other texts. But as we do this, you know, we can see the reason for Joseph's actions of planting that money in the cup of the sacks of his brothers, his pulling a fast one, as you called it, in a purely literary sense, is fairly easy to account for. It's a trick to get Benjamin to stay behind, which will in turn force his father to come to Egypt. The entire plot is orchestrated purposefully to get everyone in Jacob's family in Egypt. And in spite of Joseph's great position with Pharaoh that we hear about in this part of Genesis, Exodus begins by telling us that there will arise another king in Egypt who does not know Joseph and who will mistreat and enslave the children of Israel for 400 years. It will take the decisive action of the Lord to liberate his people and bring them to the land he promised their fathers through a covenant. It's as if, in a literary sense, the story has to be manipulated to get all the sons of Israel out of Canaan and into Egypt so that they can be enslaved and then delivered by the arm of the Lord out of Egypt and into the scriptural Canaan. We can see how, as you noted, the repetition of servant and slaves in Genesis chapter 44 is pointing ahead to what develops later in the story. And their liberation will be the Lord's doing, his victory over the seemingly mighty Pharaoh and Egypt. The show of strength exhibited by this saving act of the Lord toward his own people explains the otherwise odd phrasing we hear in Exodus chapter 12, thus they plundered the Egyptians. I wonder if we could also hear this odd phrasing as a foreshadowing of the spirit and behavior of the Israelites in general as a people. After all, God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. It seems like a gracious and merciful thing for God to do, something he would otherwise not be required to do for them. 
In the instance of the gold, which ends up being molded into the golden calf, we see this gift both literally and figuratively being turned against the giver. Israel does seem to spend a good deal of time plundering the gracious gifts of God throughout the scriptural story. The lure of clothing, silver, and gold is also something we encounter later in Joshua. At the victory at Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, Joshua commands the sons of Israel not to keep anything from the city, which is accursed, lest they bring a curse upon the camp and they be destroyed. And then we hear at the beginning of chapter 7, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabadee, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. This offense resulted in the defeat at Ai. Then the Lord confronts Joshua and tells him, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed thing from you. When it's discovered that the offense came from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Zerah, Achan is singled out. In his confession, he admits to seeing a beautiful multicolored garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of 50 shekels of gold, desiring them and taking them. See the parallels here with Exodus, in which the Israelites ask the Egyptians for clothing, silver, and gold. And unlike in Exodus, where there were spoils to plunder because of the Lord's victory, here the children of Israel are doomed to destruction and cannot stand before the enemies. They are cursed as a direct result of their disobedience to the command they were given, which was not to take any spoils of victory, but rather to bring everything to the treasury of the Lord. In Joshua, the accursed piece of clothing is even called a multicolored garment, an obvious calling to mind of the coat Joseph's father had made him back in Genesis. Most significantly, though, in the broader scriptural context, here in Joshua, the curse is specifically linked to disobedience. See also Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 27. A few details here show this to be a phenomenally powerful text. Achan is said to be of the family of Zerah, a word which in Hebrew means seed, and he is specifically of the house of Judah. Based on that alone, we can see him as a stand-in for all the descendants of the house of Judah, who rather than recognizing the Lord as their sole king, wanted to be like the nations and establish an earthly kingdom and eventually build a temple of stone. The silver, gold, and beautiful multicolored garment which Achan desired for himself they all point ahead to Judah wanting to establish an earthly kingdom, first with Saul and then David, and to build and adorn an earthly temple under Solomon. All of this is done under the premise of providing an abode for the Lord, which according to scripture is not only ironic, but absurd. 
The storyline in Genesis 44 does play to our interest in, as you say, victims and perpetrators. Typically, when we hear any story, we want to determine who the good guys and the bad guys are. But scripture doesn't allow us to do that because it forces us to realize there is one whose hand is ultimately moving the narrative along, the scriptural God. Here, we see Joseph, a character who is usually seen as innocent and obedient, pulling a fast one on his brothers, something we don't tend to associate with him. Our desire is to pit one character against another, but the biblical story shows us that God always accomplishes his purpose according to his will in spite of the good or bad behavior of the players. Later in the story, when he confronts his brothers about what they did to him, Joseph acknowledges, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. That's Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. And that's a benchmark of the stories in scripture. God gets his way in spite of the evil intent of men. He even goes so far as to set up his people to let them fall into a trap caused by their own doing so that he can then deliver them. Like most biblical stories, this one makes its point by using literary references that we have to connect to other parts of the larger biblical story. The silver cup used for divination in Genesis is setting us up to hear of the eventual idolatry of the sons of Israel, not just in the worship of the golden calf, but in the rejection of God as their sole king and judge. We hear in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Details in the story of the plundering of the Egyptians in Exodus and the keeping back of the spoils in Joshua also look ahead toward the same. It is not only we as hearers who are being set up, but the characters in the story are too. Scripture is ultimately a trap, something we find ourselves caught in, and we have no way of being freed from that trap except by the strong arm of the Lord. This idea of being saved by the strong arm of the Lord might sound comforting to many, but for those who can't stand the thought that God would set up and orchestrate his own opportunity to save his people, it might sound more like they were being strong-armed by God. Are those who wrestle with God really just having their arm twisted until they beg for mercy? After all, only one will be victorious, and it isn't Israel. Well said. Thank you, Noel, again for bringing this passage from Genesis chapter 44 to us today and for your insight. And thank all of you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed episode 19 of A Light to the Nations. I look forward to meeting with you again soon.